0: All right. Well, the funny thing is that uh, Alexi Matusic, come on up here. So we have a surgeon speaking today. Uh, and there's a couple of different things that are happening right now. One is, is that God has been working in, in Alexi's life for many years. I mean, he was raised in a believing family. His parents were missionaries in Haiti. He's had opportunities to merge his world. He, he uh, uh, developed a system in a remote part of Haiti to allow people access to, to surgical care. And uh, so how do, we, how do we get to really serving and caring for people and bringing the, the full weight of our profession? This is what this guy's struggled with and had some success in. He, uh, he also is involved in, uh, open up, people's uh, chest, he's a thoracic surgeon, and um, we talked about uh, his messages that God was building in his own life, and so he's, he's had a, a significant opportunity to try to merge science and faith. So what we're talking about today is, is probably going to be using some other muscles in your brain than you've been using in church at different points in time. Are you ready for that? Okay, and um, but also hearing his heart. So uh, anyway, we're so glad uh, you're where you're at. I'm so glad I'm not doing what you're doing, and I Fair haven't enough. put in the the hours that you do. But but the God has given you grace. He's also a ninja. <laughs> for those of you don't know. Anyway, it's another story. Competed on that show. That's so, uh, so it's a, they call him ninjas. So you're you're, you're one right. of those guys. Good good hand strength, I think, is what he's got for sure. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for my brother. We ask that that you would uh, build up the body of Christ today. That you would you would uh, uh, affirm purpose in in every professional in this room, every every person that's that's living out the the, the talents and the gifts that you've given them. And, and trying to, step by step, see what does this mean to obey Jesus and have a relationship with him in the midst of all this. So, Lord, uh, give him fresh grace and discernment and, and anointing. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Mark. Um, so the reason I'm up here today is that Mark believes and the leadership in this t- uh, church believes in building uh, and equipping people for the gospel. And so um, they've given some people a chance to talk to you, and if I don't do a good job, you'll never see me again, but that's okay. Uh, Thank you so much to the leadership team for giving me a shot at this, and I hope to um, do a good job so you guys uh, learn something. Um, Who am I? Um, Some of you don't know me. Um, We've been going to this church for about seven years. I am a person um, who's grown up in science. Uh, My parents were both educators. My dad was my... Uh, elementary school teacher for a couple years and uh, I got to watch my first surgery in Haiti at age 10 and so um, put me on a lifelong path of pursuing medicine and um, a lot of people who go through medicine know this story it's familiar to everybody but uh, that's in medicine but those of you who are not it takes a lot to get to be a practicing surgeon so I did four years of undergraduate like many of you sitting over there I did five years of medical school, including a year of research, and I did five years of general surgery and three more years of research, and now I'm finishing my final year in thoracic surgery at the Brigham and Women's, so that is 20-some years or so of uh, learning lots of science stuff, and uh, I got a public health degree from the Harvard School of Public Health, and Not to say that those are achievements that I'm proud of, but God has put me on that path and every step of the way he sent me, it wasn't because of my own achievement or my own working hard um, to get me to where I am. And I don't say get me where I am because I'm at a Harvard hospital. I say get me where I am because I'm able to do incredible things in in a way that other people don't get to experience. Um, In surgery, you are on the raw front edge of human existence. And um, that's sometimes a little bit harsh, and sometimes it's a lot to deal with. Um, I've had my hand on someone's beating heart as it stops. I have watched people die under my hands. I've watched children die. I've watched old people die. I've watched middle-aged people with children die of terrible diseases. I've also seen big saves, and people make it through things that we didn't think they should make it through. Um, four weeks ago, I got called, uh, to the operating room in a stat page to come to the operating room because a pulmonologist had done a biopsy on someone with a lung transplant. So that's a normal, easy routine procedure that should have no complications, but the patient was a little bit sicker than most. So they were doing it in the operating room. And when they call for the surgeon to come to the operating room quickly, that means they've had some kind of problem. And they said, you know, we did the biopsy. Well, we're having, we woke her up, we took the breathing tube out, but she's having trouble oxygenating and we don't know why. And I said, I'm running to the operating room, get an x-ray. It took me about six minutes to get to the operating room, but I was running as fast as I could go and didn't know if there was a serious problem or not a serious problem. But we got there and we saw the x-ray and there was expanding air on both sides of the chest. That's putting pressure on her lungs and causing her lungs not to be able to expand. So what had happened was the biopsy, you take a small little tweezers and it goes into the airway and it takes a piece of the lung and sometimes that pops a hole in the lung and then the lung the air you're blowing into the lung leaks out of the lung and accumulates inside the chest and squishes the lung down. Normally there would be no way for it to happen on both sides because they only biopsied one side but in this case it was in both sides and if the pressure gets high enough it kinks off the blood supply and this is known as a surgical emergency. Uh, It's called a tension pneumothorax and it's instantly obvious as soon as you see the x-ray so as soon as I saw the x-ray I said give me a knife like the way to the way to solve this problem is to put a hole in the person's chest because then you let the air escape and then the lung expands and then they recover it took a little longer to get the knife in my hand than I wanted but we got you know didn't take me long to get inside of her chest but put the finger in spread the hole air releases saturation comes up I felt pretty much like a hero that day I was like this is awesome to save somebody's life Went home and told Sarah, I said, I really think that I saved somebody's life today. And I found out that uh, two days later we found out that the pressure of the air was so high at the time that actually air went into her bloodstream and caused a massive stroke that she never woke up from. She was 55. Uh, So my experience is somewhat raw, and that's on the front edge of science. But I've also been privileged to live sort of on the front lines of faith. My parents are both missionaries to Haiti. I traveled to Haiti and lived there for two years at age 9 and 10 and then continued to go every summer. I have seen poverty to a level most people have not. Um, I've worked in hospitals there. I volunteered for 10 days after the earthquake in 2010. Um, There's a lot of stories I could tell about that. But my parents sacrificed a lot for the faith. They sold homes. They moved onto a fish farm in Florida. We we, um, I saw my father give up career, give up positions at universities to, to follow the Lord and, his, and the Lord's calling on his life. So I've seen what it is to live out your faith every day. I've lived with a Haitian pastor who came back to his community, and we've, uh, I'm also um, standing here as a beneficiary of a faith healing. So at age nine, I was deathly ill in Haiti from some terrible illness that I got probably from drinking some terrible water. And I had a fever of 104 for 12 straight days. I lost about 25 pounds. Despite every antibiotic they could give me, I still was sick. And uh, they were thinking about flying me to Miami. But the people that were there on the hospital, a lot of them were believers and they prayed for me and the next day the fever was gone. And I knew that at age, age nine, I knew that God had something for me to do because he could have ended it right there. So I've seen faith in action. I've seen science in action and I hope to uh, speak to you today a little bit about what I've learned along that journey. We live in a science-dominated culture right now in the Western world where science is held as the only way to know the truth. And other cultures and other points in our own history have not believed that. Um, And when you're in this sort of raw environment, it can feel like Science is a way to get some control, some understanding of a crazy world. Like I said, I've watched people die, and every day I'm reminded that we're not guaranteed 80 years. There's no guarantee of tomorrow, and the Bible tells us that, but this is raw, lived-out experience where you watch young people die of terrible things, and, you know, we have jokes in medicine that it's only the mean people who survive, and it's all the nice people who die, so it's kind of like that sometimes. You're like, why does this happen to these people? And it leaves you at a point where you're just grasping for control. So you desperately want to be able to predict something to say, "I know that this will happen. I, I can grasp onto my worldview this way." Um, and why do we do that? Because we desperately want to be our own god. Can we do this to the next slide, please? This is the, this is the fundamental human problem. In Genesis 3, 4, the woman is tempted to eat the apple because the serpent says you can be like God. You will know good. You will know evil. You'll be able to control your own decisions. You'll be able to make your own fate. That's why she eats the apple. That's why Adam eats the apple. And we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to be our own God, to have our own sense of control in our life. Um, You know this from people who don't believe. They say, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering in the world. I can't believe in a god who does this or does that or isn't visible or doesn't talk to me or they're saying I can only believe in a god I can understand and predict. I can only believe in a god I can control in some way. Now believers, we've gotten to the point where we believe in God, but we still do the same thing. We say I want to believe in a god I can understand. I know that God wants me to go to church, to read my Bible, to pray every day. That's, I got that. I, I'm comfortable with that. That feels doable. Think about the Pharisees in Jesus' time. They did this. They said, well, we have rules, right? God has given us rules, and if we follow the rules, we're good with God. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to have some sense of control. If I do this, then I receive this from God. And... I call it putting God in a box. So it's, God, it's the God box. And we all do this. So we kind of like this God that wants us to go to church, wants us to read the Bible, wants us to pray. But do we like the God that asks us to sell a house? Do we like the God who asks us to change a career? Do we like a God who says move from your city to go to a new city? This church is full of people who have done that. And you've, you've watched people in this church follow God in that way. And that's the God that I know. He's not, he's loving, he loves us, but he's not safe. He's kind of dangerous and he pushes you. And you watch every interaction that Jesus had in the Gospels and it's the same way. So one way that we as believers put God in a box is that we ignore science because we think that science is threatening. Because people who believe in science say that it proves that there is no God. So that's scary. So we kind of ignore it sometimes. Uh, and Go to the next slide, please. So this is the definition of what science is. Systematic study of behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. It is something that you see something in the environment, and then you try to predict what it, how it will behave, and there are theories, and there are tests, and there are experiments over time. One fundamental property of science is that it changes. For millennia, the world was flat, and you'd be laughed out of the, the, near your market or your local synagogue or your local church for for saying anything else. And then it was obvious that the Earth revolved around the sun. No, the other way around. The sun revolved around the Earth. Because it comes up over there and it goes on over there. So clearly it's going around us. And if you suggested anything else, you'd be laughed out of town. In fact, Galileo was almost killed, right? Because he suggested the opposite. So science changes to as we discover new things, as we observe new things, that we have new methods, new technologies, we discover more. And so science is a moving target. Um, I'll give you two examples. One from uh, medicine in my own field. And um, this is a nice video of uh, um, animation of what happens inside of a single white blood cell as it rolls along the inside of a blood vessel, gets a signal from outside that there's some microbe or thing to attack, and it has to squeeze itself in between the endothelial cells of the vessel vessel wall. In order to go from a spherical rolly ball into a flat puddle, it has to make some serious changes. And all you other science nerds in here will have taken tests on the name of all these proteins, but Um, For now, we're just going to watch them. So who is God if he can do that? That's just inside one cell. So there are levels beyond that, right? There are atoms. There are proteins. Those are mostly proteins, but there are carbohydrates and things that are much smaller, and and the universe goes infinitely small. So I like to think that if God does that, he's a master watchmaker. He is intimately concerned. Inside every cell is a galaxy of action. None of those things are alive, by the way. They're all proteins that are moving. I'm going to give you another example that goes the other direction. So, um, Next slide, please. This is the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, launched in the early 90s, now 30 years old. And the idea here was to put a space telescope uh, up above our atmosphere so that we don't get any interference from the air when we try to look at the stars. And no one knew how amazing this was going to be. And you might have remembered that the mirror was a little bit flawed and they had to go fix it because any tiny little, even microscopic imperfection in the mirror would affect the light that they were able to collect from really far away. And the pictures that came back from the Hubble are jaw-dropping. Next slide. This is the Eagle Nebula. And the size of it is some who knows how many million miles across. And the colors that are out there. And the next one is a spiral galaxy. This is similar to in structure to our own Milky Way and every dot in there is a star and there are estimated a hundred billion stars in our galaxy alone. The nearest one is 4.3 light years away so you'll never get there. <laughs> um, and that's Alpha Centauri so this this is a spiral galaxy. Now they they saw just amazing things with this telescope that show how big our universe is. And then they did something audacious. So lots of scientists wanted, wanted to have time on the Hubble to like point it at whatever their interesting thing was. And somebody came up with the audacious idea of pointing it at nothing and seeing what it saw. And everyone argued about this and decided that that's a really dumb idea because everyone wants time on the Hubble, and why are you going to point it at the darkest place in the sky? Because there's nothing there. Like, why are we looking there? Um, But they did it, and they did it twice. I'm just going to tell you about the second time. So in 2003, they pointed it at the darkest place in the sky that they could find, which was near the constellation Orion. Most of you know about Orion, it's the guy with the three stars in his belt, and they put it close to there and Hubble orbits the earth so they had to keep the shutter open and it took about 400 revolutions of the earth and 11 days of looking at just this one spot and it's called the, uh, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field and the next photograph, the, it's only one photograph is all it is um, and it's been called the most important photograph ever taken by mankind and that's the Hubble Ultra Deep Field And the amazing thing about this photograph is that none of those points of light are stars. Remember, they pointed it at the deepest, darkest place in the sky, and there's no stars there in our galaxy. So there are 10,000 points of light in this single photograph, and they're all galaxies. Every one of them. This is a terrifying photograph. Um, I don't have time to tell you about dark matter and dark energy. So if you want to learn more about how big the universe is, go look up that stuff. So science can tell us what is here and maybe some about how it behaves. But because it's a field based on observation and experiment, it cannot... My, my suggestion to you is that it cannot answer any of these questions. Next slide. Science is powerless to answer those questions. And any time someone tells you that science has an answer to one of those, they're inventing a belief system. Now, my suggestion to you and what I've come to in my journey is that the Bible answers all of those. But it doesn't primarily answer the other ones about how things were created or why, or, or what they are. It's about this. This is what Genesis is about. It's about who we are and why we're here and what our purpose is. And those are the questions that every human really wants to know. These are the original human questions that have gone back to since... Humans were around. And that's important to remember, I think, because it can get very confusing when we have debates or arguments about how things started or whatever. And it can get unhelpful, I think. So I think it's important to remember that science doesn't answer those. It can teach us a lot about God, as we've just seen, about who He is and what He put here. So I think there are a lot of ways to resolve supposed conflicts between faith and science. And I'm not here to talk to you about those because it's a lifetime of your own discovery. But the next book um, i found pretty enlightening. This is a professor at Wheaton College, a believer and an expert in ancient cultures. And he uh, has some pretty interesting arguments in this book that might be worth looking at if you're interested in this uh, topic. Um, And his point, one of his points in his book is the next slide, and he says this, and I thought this kind of stuck with me for a second. It's written for us. what he means by it's not written to us is that this is a document that survived for thousands of years in multiple cultures, by multiple authors, in multiple areas of history. Now, we know that we have to translate through language And we know that we're translating from Hebrew and Greek, but we're also translating from ancient Hebrew into modern Hebrew into English. So there's translation, but there's also translation of culture and worldview. He makes the point that if God were to create a scientific material origins account, which science would he have picked? Would he have picked flat earth? Would he have picked earth-centric solar system? Would he have picked sun-centric solar system? Would he have picked basic Big Bang that says everything is coming from one point and going out? Now we know that space time in between objects is actually increasing. So would he pick that? So if he, if he picked the, a scientific point in history to lay down an ancient document that would explain everything to us, it would have been hard for humans to digest, right? We, a lot of people would reject it. Which point in history would have accepted it? This is his point. I'm not here to argue that he's right. I'm just saying take a look at it if you're interested. Um, And I think it can really help explain because his point is that the Bible answers our purpose question. Our fundamental question is what are we doing here? And that's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is super powerful. I want to give you one example of this translate through culture thing that I know from Haiti. So in America, if I want to be your friend, say I want to be your friend, what do I do? invite you over for dinner right you come to my house and you have dinner and we get to know each other and that's what we do in Haiti that's offensive why is that offensive because it's blackmail because you can't say no to me when I invite you over for dinner because that's rude so if I invite you over for dinner it's ensnaring who knew so the thing you do is to invite yourself over for dinner Because that says, I want to be your friend. I'm willing to be in your space. I'm willing to be seen with you. I want to be close to you. And it's an honor to receive someone for dinner. When I learned that, it took me 10 years. When I learned that, I tried it out a few times and wow, did it make a big difference. Even for a three-year-old, I said, you know, I'm sleeping at your house today. Oh, wow, that's awesome. It's not rude. It's not imposing. It's awesome, right? I understood the story of Zacchaeus. Why is Zacchaeus excited when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today? Because that's what the culture was. It was honoring. It was an extreme expression of solidarity with a tax collector who is shunned by everyone as a thief and a cheat and someone who's betraying his own culture to help the Romans. And you don't understand that because we don't have a lens and we don't think about first century culture, right? We've got to translate even farther. This is origin myth. This is cosmology for Genesis 1, okay? So we got to go through, what is the Bible? The Bible is history, it's poetry, it's dreams, it's songs, it's prophecy, it's cosmology, it's logic arguments, it's court-level documents, it's eyewitness testimony to incredible events, it's paradox, it's declaration, it's imagery, it's metaphor, it's allegory, it's parable. It hits us on all the ways we're able to experience the world. It hits us in our emotions, it hits us in our... Thoughts. It hits us in our knowledge. It hits us in our guts. It hits us everywhere. So if we put it into a tiny box that says it must be according to my worldview, it it diminishes its power. To say that it's all of these things makes it more rich and powerful, not less. Now, does that mean, I want to show you what happened when somebody in the Bible put God in a box on suffering. And the guy kind of had a point. This is Job. After all, next slide, please. So Job goes through some terrible stuff. He says, God, I ate from the tree. I know what good and evil is, and you're not being fair. This answer is crazy, right? The Lord is, in a, the Lord is coming out of a tornado, first of all. And then he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's a fancy way to say, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. Were you there? And he says, stand up and take it like a man. I'm about to show you who's boss. This is a guy who did nothing wrong and has terrible suffering, right? And he challenges God after a long time. So God says, were you there? And this, I don't know if you've ever read this, this is three chapters long about how God dresses him down, saying, I'm God, you're not. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. It may not seem like I know what I'm doing, but you can't put me in a box. Yes, Job, I love you. Yes, Job, I created you. Yes, Job, I care about you more than you'll ever know. But you can't put me in a box. I'm the God of the universe. Now, the counter to this is if you, on your own journey in considering faith and science, if you get a little loose with literal interpretation in Genesis 1, does that mean that you can't trust the rest of the Bible? Absolutely not. This is not like if, God, if you come to the conclusion that God did not create the world in seven 24-hour days, does that mean that you have to question whether Jesus rose from the dead or not? No, because the Bible is all those things we just listed. And the Gospels are eyewitness testimony by people who died for it that would be convicting in any court of law. If you want more on that, next slide, please. This book is Fantastic. This will set you on a firm foundation for believing in the gospel accounts and the resurrection. I don't have time to go into everything he says in this book, but it's unbelievable. You can rest assured that your faith is solid. You can rest assured that your faith has profound impact on your day-to-day life. It has profound things to say in a world that believes in science. So how does this play out in your life? Maybe you're like me and maybe you're in a scientific field. Maybe you're at work and you feel a little scared sometimes to share about the Lord because people will think I'm not smart. People won't give me a promotion. People will think I'm less than. People will think I'm not rational. People will, people will, people will. That's the fear of man. Okay? We don't need to be afraid. Our... God answers the fundamental questions of human history. Why are we here? What is our purpose? That's what people want to know. And if they don't really want to know, they're just trying to convince themselves that they're able to be their own God. Because if I can convince myself that there is no God, then I can be my own master. That's the fundamental human condition. And our Bible has a lot to say about that. If you're in college, I want to talk to you guys for just a second. Because... When you're in college, you've just gone away from your parents. And a lot of people create or form who they are in those four to five years. And so a lot of people have their faith shaken in college. A lot of people go to religious classes who try to prove that the Bible isn't true or that it doesn't really have any relevance. It's a nice ancient document that you can criticize literarily and so on you also have forming friendships with people who are all trying to figure themselves out and all trying to form out what do I really think and a lot of times after college it's, you can still have some formation but a lot of it happens in those four years so I want to encourage you guys that your friends and yourselves and your colleagues are in a you're a piece of clay right now and what you discover and what you hang on to forms the basis of who you're going to be going forward So if you witness to someone in college, if you say, yeah, we're in a scientific, we're at Boston College, we're at Boston University, we're at Harvard University, and yeah, science makes sense and it teaches me awesome things about God. What? Right? My parents were, my mom was saved in her college years. You have an opportunity if you're bold and if you're strong in your faith and if you're nuanced and if you're able to witness to people how do you witness best? By loving them, by loving enemies, by... It's all, no one is saved because they got debated into it. Right? I've never heard that happening. Maybe it happens to somebody, but, like, maybe Lise Strabel is, like, the only one. I don't know. But very few. It's all about human interactions and love and sacrifice that draws people. And those years are really formative. So in conclusion, I want to say that I want us to have confidence that Jesus is the answer to our questions of purpose. I would love it if we had humility in areas where the Bible isn't that clear and that we approached quite those questions with, I don't know all the answers, but I know this, that God loves me and he died for me and he saved you and he can be as powerful in your life as he has been in mine. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. If we say we've got it all figured out, everyone knows we're lying. If we come in humility and we say, there are a lot of things I don't understand. There are some things I understand that I don't like. But I don't get to choose what God says. I don't get to choose who he is. He is who he is. And we have to believe in him. I wish we would have courage to loosen our worldview a little bit to allow God to come out of his box. Maybe he's asking you to do something you're scared of. Bet on it. Guaranteed he is. Let God explode the barriers we're keeping him in. And I want to say this final thing, that God loves you beyond imagination. He is the master watchmaker. He paints with lives, with memory, with history, with emotion, with knowledge across an arc of billions of years. He is timeless. He is without limits. He is intimate and cosmic at the same time. He is surprising and he is dangerous. He is not safe and he is not comfortable, but he will protect you and he will be with you. He is the only source of meaning and he is the greatest adventure you will ever have. Thank you.